Uh, story hour with Uncle Scott. So if kids want to have a little story time, Uncle Scott reads a classic story. I mean classic, like this is a really old story. Yes, Josiah has become mobile. Okay, do, do you guys know what twins are? Yeah, two baby twins. Yeah, do you know any twins? Uh, Margo and Whitaker are twins. Margo and Whitaker, okay. A boy and a girl, so it can be two boys or two girls. A boy and a girl can be twins. They're babies that come at the same time. This is a story about twins. One twin was named Harry. Because he was really hairy, even when he came out. And one twin was named Jake the Snake. He was a trickster. Even when he came out, he was holding on to his brother's heel. The brother came first, and he was like, it was almost like he was trying to pull him back or come out first. So they named him Jake the Snake and Harry. So these two brothers were twins. And they, you have an uncle named Jake. I hope not Jake the Snake, because this is a story about how he earned that name, Jake the Snake. So um, Harry grew up and loved to hunt, and he loved to be outdoors. And Jake the Snake loved being at home. And the dad, Isaac, really loved being outdoors, and he was a lot like Harry, so he and Harry were really close, and the mom was kind of like Jake, and she bonded with him, and so these two brothers grew up, and their parents didn't dress them alike or anything. They were just really, really, really different people. They were both boys. Both Harry and Jake were boys. One day, Harry was out hunting, deer and stuff like that and he was out for a really long time and he hadn't had anything to eat and he didn't catch anything he came back in and jake the snake his brother was cooking this really lovely stew and harry was super super hungry he's like hey give me some of that stew i'm dying here i'm famished and jake is thinking hmm what can I sell this to him for? He's really desperate. Well, Harry's the oldest. And in that culture, when you're the oldest, even if you're just a few minutes older, the dad will give you all of the property and all of the sheep and goats and all the servants. And then you have to take care of all that stuff. But he was just a few minutes before Jake. And so he was the oldest. And Jake is like, how about you say that I'm the firstborn? Sell me what's called your birthright, like this right to be the firstborn. He's like, hey, that has no meaning for me. I'm super hungry. I can't eat my birthright. Sure, whatever. You can be the firstborn. That was one way he got his name, Jake the Snake. He tricked Harry into saying that he was the firstborn, not Harry so that he would get all the good stuff and inherit all the stuff and take care of all the stuff. Well, years later, 
when their dad was about to die. He called Harry in because he still thinks, hey, this is my firstborn. I'm going to give you the blessing. I'm, I'm about to die, but first I want you to go out and get deer for me. Get some, hunt some for me with your bow and arrow. Prepare it and bring it into me, and then I'm going to give you the blessing. Well, the mom, who was super close to Jake, the snake, heard this. And so she's like, Jake, come here. Your brother's gone out to hunt, to make something for your dad. Bring me a couple goats. Let's feed your dad the goats and pretend that you're Harry. Because the dad couldn't see very well, hardly at all at this time. You can be the person who dad gives the blessing to. And he's like, ah, but Harry is Harry, and I'm not. Don't worry about that. We will trick your dad. Just bring me the goats. So Jake the snake got the goats, and Mom prepared it just the way that Dad liked and sent Jake in. Hey, Dad, I got your game here. He's like, who is this? Because he couldn't see. What? This is Harry. Harry? Doesn't sound like Harry. Come here. He comes there, and mom had tied the goat fur on his hands and on his neck so that when the dad reached out to touch, he'd think he was really hairy, even though he wasn't. Come here. He touches him. Hmm. You're hairy like Harry, but your voice is like Jake the Snake. That's strange. So he asks him, are you really hairy? Jake's like, yep, I am says, okay, bring it here, come a little closer, and he grabs him. Well, mom had had him put on Harry's clothes so that it smelled like Harry. Well, it smells like Harry, feels like Harry, sounds like Jake. I guess you're Harry. And so the dad gives him the blessing, like, okay, you are going to be the ruler of your brother and everything, and I'm giving you everything, and I'm blessing you. He eats his stuff. Jake the snake leaves. You see where he gets his name? Snake means, like, tricky. Like, if his name was Ricky, he'd be Tricky Ricky because he's just really cunning and tricky. He goes, and then who do you think comes with the food that his dad asked for? Harry. Harry brought... Hi, Dad. It's like, wait, who are you? I'm Harry. I've got the stuff you wanted. Dad freaks out. Ah, oh, man, I should have caught it. It was your brother. He came and took your blessing. Harry's like, well, can't you just give me some blessing? I already gave it to Harry. I can't take it back now. Jake the snake tricked his brother with that stew into giving... Harry, Harry giving him his birthright. And then when his dad was about to die, he tricked him again because his dad was blind. That's not nice. And those brothers became enemies. Can you imagine how Harry would feel that Jake tricked everybody like that and took his stuff? Very mad. It's called identity theft. It is really bad. Do you think they ever made up, these two brothers? 
No, yes. Well, we'll hear about that in a couple Sundays. That's all. That's just how Jake the Snake earned his name. That's the end of the story. You can go back. Yeah. So, what is this story trying to tell us? Is it primarily about deception? You know deception. Springtime in Wisconsin. Now that's the, you know... March 21st means nothing to the state of Wisconsin, but is it about trickery, deception, lying? Maybe. This week at work, I was in a meeting, a weekly meeting, where our, our boss had said, I'd like you to watch this or listen to this, and then we're going to talk about it. It was a talk. And I hadn't done it. And so... He's like, hey, has everyone listened to the talk? Everyone said yes, except me. No, I haven't. Um, All right, you know, we went on. Well, that next day, one of my work colleagues called me. He said, "Um, I've called to confess something and to apologize. I hadn't listened to that. And the Holy Spirit convicted me. I kind of, you know, I'd heard the first part and and then I hadn't heard the rest. And you said you hadn't. I had actually heard the first part too and hadn't done the rest. And everyone said, including me, said that they had. Well, I called our boss and confessed to him and apologized that I had said I'd listened to it when I didn't. And I felt like I need to apologize to you too because you're the one who said that you didn't. You were the one who looked kind of bad. And actually, it was because I um, didn't tell the complete truth. It really touched me. Here's a colleague who's convicted because he just heard the first part of this talk that we were, gonna, we were asked to talk about, and he said, yeah, he kind of mumbled it, you know. It was one of those, uh, yeah, but not a very clear, yeah, I've done it. But enough that he was convicted. That kind of um, brutal honesty and interrogation of oneself in a healthy way, that's a beautiful Lenten spirit to take on, that kind of deep self-examination, that readiness to to be um, pierced in our heart about things we've done. I remember, I think I've told this before, but uh, I remember telling one of my work colleagues, hey, during Lent, Let's just be super vulnerable and, and let's play confessor to one within the Catholic community. There's often a confessor. You've got your confessor that you go to. And let's just be like, even if we just had that second cookie, which like isn't really, is, but like we know, probably not, but we do it like that level. Let's just be totally honest every day. And so um, we also shared during that Lenten period a uh, retreat day at Holy Wisdom Monastery. So, okay, we got together, and and my confession was, because I felt a little bit guilty, I'm afraid I don't feel very guilty doing this very often, but I was driving five miles an hour over the speed limit. It's like, this is the limit at which you ought to drive. I'm a very impatient driver. And so 
I drove five miles an hour over the speed limit. So my friend says, okay, I'm going to give you penance. Like, let's do the sort of high church Catholic thing. Your penance, in order to sort of examine and exercise this tendency, this sort of impatience, it really comes out of impatience. The sin wasn't driving five miles an hour. The, the sin was, I got to get there and I, uh, you know, I'm jockeying. I got to find the, you know, this guy's going to, I can cut him off. You know, that kind of impatience. You're going to drive five miles an hour under the speed limit on the way home. That was so hard for me. I was that white haired guy driving five miles an hour under the speed limit. Someone behind me is like, that blasted old man driving five miles an hour under the speed limit, cutting around me on on M, this is on M, you know, there's two lanes. <laughs> it's like, there's a there's a parade of cars behind me. I'm doing five miles an hour. That that was killing me. <laughs> yes, I'm, tr- I'm trying the patience of those behind me, even as I'm exercising impatience out of me. But it was one of those places where, like, I'm... I don't have a an emergency. I don't have a certain time I need to be home. Like, can I just lean into the time is whatever the time is. I'm just not even going to care about it. That was really, really hard to do. But it was came out of this season of like, let's just be brutally honest about the little tiny things that are just sort of what we might call little white lies or little missteps or sins of omission. Like, let's just be honest about stuff. You know, um, the patriarchs were deceivers. I mean, they were they were all tricksters, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They, they all had the sister wife joke that they played, right? So Abraham, you know, is with Pharaoh and thinks, I'm just going to call you my sister because, you know, I don't know whether within the culture there was a um, kind of goddess thing where that would, there was some sort of ritual, but like, pretend like you're my sister. Technically, you kind of are, blah, blah, blah. Um, Isaac did the same thing. Isaac did the exact same thing his dad did with Rebekah. And then Jacob, of course, has this whole litany of deceptions that the patriarchs were liars and deceivers and they raised dysfunctional families. (laughs) Like, that's the foundation upon which our faith and the faith of our Jewish brothers and sisters is built. Um... And I I think the honesty of scriptures is to help us recognize the thread of brokenness and sin that goes through all of us and God's faithfulness despite the brokenness and fallibility and lying, cheating, stealing spirit that occupies us. And maybe it's also a warning about um, celebritism or heroes, you know, don't put these guys on a pedestal. Like, let's tell you the truth about these guys, the beauty and the brokenness of them. 
so that you don't get caught putting people like Ravi Zacharias or Bill Hybels or you know Mark Driscoll up on these pedestals. They're made of flesh. They're fallible. You know, even Mother Teresa, her confessor, wrote a book after she had passed away about ways in which she had felt in her latter years very, very distant from God and very disenfranchised. All these people that we want to emulate and worship, like the story of the patriarchs and the stories throughout Scripture warn us that we ought not to put one another on a pedestal. Probably why Jesus warns us, don't judge others. Like You're getting into dangerous territory because you start judging and we start applying those things to you, it's not going to go well. Like, just don't judge. Even Paul, like, do not judge the servant of another before his own master he will stand or fall. Like, everyone will give an account. Like, you don't have to worry about, you know, trying to fix things by correcting. Like, just recognize that we all come from the same stock. Like the patriarchs, God is faithful and we're not. And let's just recognize that and confess our faithlessness and our fallibility and our brokenness. So is this story about deception? Is that the main thing that we ought to get out of it? I don't know. Maybe. It's not where I want to go. What about dysfunction, family dysfunction? We, we certainly see it here. No one comes out rosy. Not even Harry, Esau, comes out very well. Um, first of all, he's he despises his birthright, is how the author puts it. Like he doesn't really care about the system that holds that society together, and uh, and he gets so upset at his parents. He knows he sees that they're displeased that he marries this Hittite woman, and he says, "Good." He goes looking for another one marries a second Hittite woman just to anger his parents like he's he's not the you know he, he is a victim of sorts here but he's not the bastion of altruistic uh, shiny character um, you know Isaac suffered a kind of favoritism by his dad Abe Abe totally put Isaac above Ishmael and it created all sorts of nastiness. So here the sort of brokenness of Isaac spills over into the same thing his dad did, not only the sort of sister-wife trick, uh, but with like playing favorites and the kind of pain that caused and friction with Sarah uh, and um, Hagar, Isaac and Ishmael. We don't know a lot about Rebecca. Um, so she played favorites too here. She doesn't look sterling. She was raised by her brother Laban. And the story of Laban, he was kind of a trickster too. So I don't know what happened there. But like the, the brokenness of Isaac and Rebecca that they carry from their upbringing gets passed on. And so this this chain 
of um, sadness and brokenness and alienation um, sort of continues through Jacob and Esau. I'm really surprised at Esau's level of deception. You know, it's one thing to sort of play a trick on your brother when he's hungry. It's another thing to actually go into your dad and to say, who is it? I'm Esau. Dad's kind of like, no, you're not. Yes, I am. You know, over and over he has this opportunity. And you can tell dad is suspicious. There's something else going on. And the dad has several criteria that he's, you know, ticking through. And he's still, I think, I, I, I would guess that Isaac came to that place like, I, I'm not sure this is, this is more like Jacob than Esau, but I don't think Jacob would go to this extent to trick me. Like, I'm just going to believe it because I can't see him, you know, doing something to make his hands hairy and smelling like and blah, blah, blah. And he says clearly, and he asks him a couple times, are you sure this is Esau? Like, Jacob is very, very clearly premeditatedly deceptive with his dad. You know, maybe favoritism is somewhat understandable as kids have personalities and some are like, oh, we like the same things and I see the same sort of characters in this kid. So there, there might be a natural propensity to feel like, oh, I identify more with this kid or this kid really identifies or snuggles with me or, you know, there's something that creates that space. Um, but but the differences in families ought to be honored, not sort of celebrate the person who's most like you or likes the same things. And I, I think as a parent, we're all called to explore our stuff that comes from our family upbringing and keep it from bleeding into this generation. Like my, um, my dad's family, there is terrible estrangement. Eight siblings, two of which are personas non gratis. Like the other six siblings for decades have not spoken with these two sisters. It had something to do with, you know, how grandma passed on and they got the house and the other kids didn't. So maybe they feel justified and like, no, they, you know, they were tricking like Jacob, you know, we're the Esau, we're the victims here. It's really hurt my, uh, and my brother and sisters, you know, we don't have relationship with these two. I remember little when I was little and as a young man even having relationship with these two aunts but it was cut off probably in my late 20s and my kids are like Hannah was like I'm really upset that I and Aunt Penny passed away really upset that I didn't get to know Aunt Penny she's a nurse like me and like I feel that loss of here's this aunt that I have that I've never met and that's like a robbery from me all because of this 
tendency toward estrangement, this brokenness that that sort of plagues our families in the inability of um, us or the previous generation to sort that out and find where's that coming from and how do I make amends? Um, but my teaching's not about family dysfunction. Get to the point, Jeff says. Trickily, I have actually taught a little bit on each of those two. But, you know, Scripture's funny in that it's so affected by the current context that you're in, right? So I've probably, I've probably read from Genesis to Revelation kind of straight through uh, 20 times, 25 times. And I have read the Bible pretty much every day for 40 years. And yet you encounter a section or a story that is completely transformed and looks different because of the context that you're in. Like the philosopher who said you never step into the same river twice because a river is constantly moving. That's sort of the living nature of scripture is that it will speak differently to you in different seasons of your life. It may just be one year between when you read it last and when you read it now, and its meaning has been transformed because of the situation that you're in, which is very different. So um, for me, it was this idea of division, this, this reality between these two siblings with two very different personalities and likes and dislikes and how that was um, something that turned poisonous, something that was allowed to turn toxic in their relationship as siblings. Uh, it's also really curious to me, this as a, as a modern Western person, this idea of blessing and curse. You know, like today... If Jacob did what he did, that is called identity fraud, identity theft. And you could be taken to court and like, oh, no, this agreement was made under these false pretenses. So, no, it's revoked like that. Why couldn't they do that? Why couldn't, you know, Isaac say, oh, no, uh, Jacob got that under false pretense. So it's null and void. I can give you the there's something about the power of words the permanent power of words, of blessing and of curse that has a kind of cosmic power to do good or to do harm. Um, one uh, rabbi said, you know, words are like arrows. Once they're released from the bow, you can't take them back. This is something that comes out of the... Um, the Mishnah um, or the Talmud. Words are important. And so we see in Isaac the power of these words, which he cannot trade. Like he's spoken these things. He was tricked out of giving the right blessing to the right person, and that's irrevocable because the blessing that he has is irrevocable. And the kind of hard word he has for Esau, though it does end with, you're going to get restless, and at a certain point, 
you're going to throw the yoke of your brother off you. Like there is this thread of hope that he's able to give to Esau, even though he cannot reverse because of identity theft, the blessing that he's given uh, to Jacob. A friend on Friday said, you know, uh, verbal proclamation about Jesus like a sign that points to Jesus, but it needs to be held up on a post by a solid character. There's a way in which our character allows us to have the words that give that, that point to Jesus and have integrity because they're they're solidly affixed to a upright post. The words um, need character to be held up. Um, last week also I had a really hard time with a colleague. Um, we had a, a pretty serious difference of opinion. We're both working on this very consequential document that's going to affect my world pretty drastically with regard to nationally how our short-term programs, the things that I'm over, are um, woven into a strategic plan for the next four years. He had a very different take on what we should or shouldn't resource and and we were exchanging words on this, you know, really lengthening comment section of a document. And I was getting um, offended, a little hurt. Like, this is my thing. Like, um, and I've, I've been traveling overseas, and so I'm waking up at five and six. And I was just having conversations. Oh, they were really great conversations with this guy in my head at 5 in the morning. I looked really good. I had these magnificent soliloquies that were just beautiful and elegant about why I was right. Oh, he was so shamed and sorry in those conversations. Um, So Friday we had a chance to connect. Um, and you know it was a good conversation we get so um, everything becomes a hill to die on (laughs) because we're deep deep convictions which are good I love in the screw tape letters so the, the sort of cleavage area, the the separation area of the British church when this was being written was um, the Second World War. The Christian pacifists versus the British Christian patriots. And so those were deep divisions and here's what uh, I don't remember, is it Wormwood who's writing to screw tape or vice versa? Let him begin by treating the patriotism or the pacifism as part of his religion. Then let him, under the influence of partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part. Then quietly and gradually nurse him on to the stage at which the religion becomes merely a part of the cause in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent argument it can produce in favor of the British war effort or of pacifism. Um, 
It's like weaponizing your faith. And I was kind of doing that in my head with this, like, here's the scriptural basis for why you're wrong in suggesting what you're suggesting. And and my righteous indignation was aroused. When we, when we got to the table on Zoom, just he and I, I felt like I was able to present it decently. I'm a decent fellow, and I I didn't come at him, though I did use, I, I did have that practice of being awake and having all that sort of great uh, word mastery. I did sort of pull some phrases out of there, but not with vitriol. And I feel like uh, my colleague was able to express his position in a way that I could hear, and me in a way that he could hear. I think we came to a place of almost enjoying the ability to speak freely and frankly without it disrupting the friendship. And there's a history of probably 15 years of, um, I don't know how to, difference between his area of ministry and mine. Like broken trust in little parts that sort of were underground, I didn't know about where his folk felt like trust was broken. I knew a little bit about where my colleagues felt trust was broken, but that became part of this story, part of the toxic sort of distance. It's like, ah, uh, not enough where like, oh, I should go and tell him, like, ah, oh, it's not that big a deal. You know, that those little things that build up and become toxic. I feel like there was a joy in our coming together on Friday to talk about that. We were um, cleverly placed in a room together in Mexico City a few months ago by a colleague who did the housing. And we bonded. I mean, he is just this uh, goofy, crazy, fun-loving guy like me. So, like... (laughs) We just bonded, and that was part of creating this um, soil out of which we could say, you know, here's some ways that I felt, I don't know, um, dissed by you. That working out of that relationship, mainly around words that felt poisonous, but we were able to sort that through in a really beautiful way that, Help me to, you know, and this is the soil out of which I'm reading this this week. You know, I'm having this, these discussions all week in my head until Friday when I had the real discussion. Encountering these brothers who have this um, toxic relationship that I'm guessing started long ago. Soon as, you know, eight-year-old Esau started hunting with his dad and Jacob's like, I'm not into that, you know, doing stuff with like those sorts of things create this space that um, in which we become estranged from one another. It's not to say that there aren't reasons within our denominational splintering, which, you know, when my dad, before he passed, he's like, why would I believe what you have to say as a you know Protestant Christian 
when I see how fractured your community is. Like, how would what you have to say be true if you guys can't even agree yourselves? So like, they'll know we are Christians by our love. There's some truth to that. But I think I've come to appreciate that there are times in which you hold some convictions that are related to your faith, like uh, pacifism or uh, just war theory, where it may be okay for your conscience to be located with people who have those same convictions. I do think there's beauty, and one of the things I love about this church is I think there's a, a fair diversity of convictions within our community, and yet, relationally, we hold together, more or less. But probably it's okay for there to be a Catholic church and an Orthodox church and a whole slew of Protestant denominations. I do remember uh, visiting Penny's sister and brother-in-law in in, uh, Lena, Wisconsin, Old Order Mennonites, who are like, you know, uh, David was talking to me about the divisions that happened within the Amish and, and the Mennonite communities. And one of them he was relating was over whether or not to use um, incubators. And like, yeah, incubators are a step too far in our call to simplicity. And he said, you know, a group broke off who felt like that could be used. But we're still in fellowship. Like, it's not like we think they're not Christian or something. It's just like... We remain in a place where our deep convictions are commonly held with another group of people. I think I'm becoming okay. I had this sort of maybe idealistic view of the unity of the church. Um, Having convictions that call us into different communities at times, I think may be okay. But there's something about the choice to... uh, weaponize our convictions against someone else that bothers me and I see it in my dad's family I see it in me I see it in Jacob and Esau Um, and do they remain arch enemies you'll have to come back when we teach part two of Jacob. Um, I was recently, and I'll I'll wrap up with this, I was recently in Manila, and a good friend of mine started a foundation because he uh, earned a great deal of money and wanted to give it away. And one of his areas is Christians working among the poor. And so I'm like, hey, I've got some places to show you. We went to seven different ministries, none of which are related to InterVarsity. They're all people that I, over the years, have gone and play students with or, or come to respect. First place we went, um, Catholic priest, Father Ben Beltran, who lived in the Smoky Mountain garbage dump with uh, rag pickers uh, there. Wow, what an incredible man. Uh, he had this statue made for their their church of Jesus with uh, uh, with a, a garbage grabber and a and a burlap sack, like 
just this brilliant, lovely man. And, you know, his perspective on uh, evangelism, I think I would say is more holistic. It's less verbal. And uh, certainly the, the Catholic Church is the true fellowship of believers. And and so it's just a, a very beautiful, different engagement. He's working in some pretty um, difficult situations and perspectives and doing good work. George, you've got to see this guy. Later that day, okay, you've got to see Attorney Rainier Chu, church planter uh, in the very, very outskirts, much more kind of reformed, uh, give me that old-time religion, and doing amazing work. He's like, you don't want to go to the the you know slum communities in Metro Manila. Those are the rich poor. You got to get out on the edges where they don't have electricity or water, and there are no churches doing any sort of work. Yeah, forget the. I mean, both these guys have very deep convictions about what ministry ought to look like, and might excommunicate one another if they were sort of forced in a room to say what is essential. And then on to a 28-year-old guy. Uh, American, Filipino-American, I mean, tatted from neck on down, and a rap artist who's living in a scrap wood structure uh, and sewage is running right outside his place. It's overwhelming to step into his hot box over sewage. And like, as he's talking to us, George is like, "Uh, is he a communist? (laughs) I'm like, Maybe a bit. He's just, you know, he's a very progressive socialist, at least. George is not that. <laughs> and yet, here's this kid, young man, who's going to be the only, probably one of the only faces of Christ that some kid in his some community that he's playing bass, and he's gathering the kids and they're doing raps together. They've got a website where they're creating these raps, and he's been asked to be godfather of some of these kids that he's, like, how beautiful. And then there's, you know, the attorney Chu, who's working amongst the, the poor poor, not the rich poor. He lives in a mansion, actually. <laughs> he's got a heart of gold. He's sacrificed a great deal over the course of his life in order to see churches planted there. But, you know, Across the the wall from his mansion is this couple that lives in a slum. Over his wall is a slum community. They've lived there for 20 years, raised their kids there, believing it's not until you actually live on the ground with folk that you can make and that you have any credibility to speak into. This, you know, again, super diverse very deeply held convictions. The reasons they can make such incredible sacrifices because they hold those convictions with such depth. And yet I find this beauty in all of them and I'm swayed, you know, as my uh, Neogram 9 nature is like, oh yeah, that could be right. Oh yeah, that could be right. Like there's just such beauty. Um the quote attributed to Augustine, but it's actually some obscure 
German pastor is uh, in essentials unity and non-essentials liberty and in all things charity now where you say this is an essential and this is a non-essential that's where it gets sticky we, we move beyond the Apostles Creed in adopting other essentials I think we're in dangerous territory how do we allow liberty with non-essentials how do we define non-essentials while still holding really solid deep convictions I think convictions and hills to die on are beautiful and have produced like none of the ministries that I showed would have been possible if they were if they held the same convictions about how ministry ought to be done and the most important thing in Christian work among the poor. So liberty in non-essentials, charity in all things, unity in essentials, that's how I'm experiencing this story this time around as I read it and see these two brothers. In fact, Jesus said, I want you to call people you're not related to, brother or sister. That's how I want you to see one another. You're in the same family. And to see these physical blood brothers become so estranged, and the word grudge is used in that set of passages. I find grudges in myself, and I'm, I'm finding, as I did with my colleague on Friday, that really honest discussion with um, with an assumption of, of grace and goodwill is a great place to start as we sort out what's it mean to hold convictions. We didn't actually come to the same conclusion. We, we came to respect each other's conclusions uh, and, and we came to kind of a common ground but we still think very differently about ministry among students and the location of programs like global programs in that ministry. But I just love being around him and and am hurt by him and he by me. It's this interesting complex um, set of relationships and I'm glad to call him brother as I feel that from him to me. Not sure where this is landing. Perhaps even some of you are feeling, no, I disagree very strongly. <laughs> and maybe we need to have a discussion. That's okay. But like, that's what I'm carrying and, li- and hearing from the Spirit and offering to be weighed. I like to say uh, we ought not to judge, but we ought to discern. I think there's a difference between judgment and discernment. It's okay for you to discern and come to a different place than me, even on this passage. Let me pray for us and send us out. God, it would have been a lot easier if you made everyone just like me. Um, What beautiful harmony we would have. What great fun. And yet there's something amazing about 
the tension that comes with difference and with deeply held conviction. Would you help us to have deep feelings and deep convictions without that tendency to estrange ourselves from those who love you and know you? Do you give us those spaces where we're around people who share those convictions, that we can breathe easy, enjoy one another's company, and then be sent out into disparate and different groups of people, different incomes, different ethnicities, different preferences, different ideas about what the kingdom ought to look like that we might be made more like you in the process. A diverse and beautiful being that looks as crazy and different as the entire humanity that you've created. And the cosmic differences in the plant and animal world all reflect the beauty of your character in its many facets. Give us that kind of appreciation for one another. In Jesus' name, amen.